Welcome back. This is part two of my look at Roger Stern's run on The Amazing Spider-Man. He continued with issue 49 of Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man, building upon his supporting character and subplots he'd already started developing in the previous issues. The cover to issue 49 is powerful and dynamic, as a new villain, the Smuggler, crashes through a skylight to kick Spider-Man in the armpit. Hmm... To be fair, it's probably difficult to aim when you're leaping through a glass roof. Enter the Smuggler. Was by Stern with art by Jim Mooney and Bruce Patterson. Mooney was the artist on Supergirl for a while over at DC Comics and had worked on Spider-Man back in the 1960s with John Romita. He returned for a lengthy stint in the 1980s, but that's a tad further down the line from these comics. We open as Peter is burning the midnight oil at ESU trying to grade some papers. It's Saturday afternoon, so his concentration keeps wavering, and he finds himself reading the same lines over and over and over. As someone who's done this, I can relate. It's odd nowadays that Pete has to stay in the office to do this, as with online learning and the cloud, work can be submitted to look at anywhere. But I guess back then, Peter couldn't be bothered lugging papers all the way home and all the way back again. If he lost them whilst dallying about as Spider-Man, his students, and the principal would not be impressed. Phil Chang has nipped by as he's left a phone number on his desk. Again, today, this would not be an issue. Still, Phil uses this as an excuse to drag Peter off for some Saturday night fun at places guaranteed to be full of wild, wild women. Here, we see the 80s creative types had a far better handle on early 20s Peter Parker than the writers of today. And I did start to wonder why that would be. Ultimately... The conclusion I came to was these writers were adults in their 20s, whereas today we're seeing the rise of the infantilized adult. Well into their 30s, people are still acting like teenagers, be it the media they consume, the clothes they wear, and the interactions they have. Peter is far more together here than he is in modern-day Spider-Man comics, where he's frequently portrayed as being barely able to tie his own shoelaces. It's also nice to see Peter here in an adult friendship with a peer and have them talk sincerely about the dating scene and Phil try to boost Peter's self-esteem. There's no mocking dialogue, no self-aware references or snark, just two friends going for a beer and trying to help each other out. Phil Chang and the other TAs were nice additions to the cast and gave Peter a friendship group away from being Spider-Man and away from the Flash, Murray Jane and Harry of it all. On the way to the club, though, Phil spots Tommy Lee, not that one, actually a member of the White Dragon gang. Spider-Man shut down the whole White Dragon drug lord scene, but Lee must have escaped. Phil and Peter pursue, but Tommy makes his getaway, and Peter decides to follow as Spider-Man. What follows is a really neat action beat that I swear I could hear Mike Post score underneath. Spider-Man is spotted by Tommy, and Tommy tries to dodge and weave his van through traffic to get away. Spider-Man bounces from car to car, swinging between lampposts and through gaps in traffic, and it's well drawn by the art team. It's not showy art, but you can follow it, and it tells the story well. This is the kind of action beat Sam Raimi would mimic in Spider-Man 2. Tommy ultimately gets away when a helicopter fires on Spidey, because Tommy is part of a far larger plot. Tommy and Brent, the helicopter pilot, are working for Eric Joston, the smuggler of the cover. 
It has a Starship Enterprise-style semi-circular computer desk from which to carry out his nefarious schemes. And initially, he's played as a bit of a mystery. It turns out that the smuggler is actually an old Luke Cage villain. Spider-Man will track him down after catching up with Tommy and basically forcing Tommy to talk, which I'm sure is a perfectly legal way of getting information out of somebody. Spidey stumbles across a bog-standard smuggling ring and sets about breaking it up. Stern writes Spider-Man as a moderately funny motormouth, whereas, again, more recent comics have him as a borderline stand-up comedian. I prefer the Stern method. Spidey shouldn't have people rolling in the aisles. You should have them wanting him to shut the hell up. Yes, he's funnier than Superman or Iron Man or Batman, but he's not a rat-a-tat gag man. Stern also builds the humour into the strip organically, as seen here in a set piece where Spidey drags Tommy on top of a tube train to get to Brooklyn, where the smuggler is holed up. Two engineers, Artie and Sam, are working the line, and after this minor encounter with Spider-Man, swore to never work weekends again. Sam and Artie are presumably named after letters Artie Simek and Sam Rosen, a far subtler name check than Stan and Steve, and it's a gently humorous moment rather than ribald comedy, but it works. Demonstrating his versatility, and as with the comedy, Stern also minds the Parker look for drama far better than a lot of modern writers. It's a tried and true trope having Spider-Man run out of webbing, but how Stern does it makes the difference. Spider-Man doesn't have enough webbing left to do a decent job of binding the smuggler, so he has to use what he does have to bind it as tight as possible. But then he has to keep hold of the smuggler so as not to allow him to escape. This means Spidey has no webbing and one arm out of action for the upcoming melee with the smuggler's men, all of whom are waiting in the wings. Now I know what you're thinking, this seems like a bit of a low-key cliffhanger, but it's no less effective for all that. The abrupt ending, though, allows for a short backup feature featuring the White Tiger. This will run for a few issues before colliding with the main strip down the line. Stern wrote it, with Dennis Cowan providing the art. It's basically an info dump on the White Tiger's history with the martial arts group The Sons of the Tiger and how the White Tiger's powers are tied in an amulet of power he wears around his neck, the death of his brother and the brutal murder of his entire family. The tiger and a private investigator named Nathaniel Bird, nicknamed Black Bird because he's a person of colour, both interrogate Lou Gunther, who they seem to think know who killed the tiger's fam. It's a decent backup story, but if I didn't already know it tied in with future stories, I probably wouldn't be bothering covering it. The 50th issue of Peter Parker the Spectacular Spider-Man has a cover by Frank Miller and shows Peter Parker, depicted as half Spider-Man, rips the false face off a waiter to reveal the aliens first seen in Amazing Spider-Man 2. Stern writes with Ramita Jr. and Jim Mooney as the artists in a story called Dilemma. This is an issue of two halves. The first half wraps up the smuggler story and is generally entertaining for what it is. The cliffhanger goes all out for the inherent comedy of the moment, as Spidey has to defeat the Hoods with one arm holding the smuggler and no webbing. And Spidey's usual and irreverent attitude to the criminals is all very amusing. His lack of respect for these people sells the moment, as there's nothing pompous people dislike more than being treated as a joke. Eventually the gang all long for the respite of being knocked out. 
Especially funny is the scene where Spidey walks down a corridor, at the end of which the bad guys await. Spidey sticks the smuggler's head out first, and the hoods KO their own boss. With the smuggler no longer a concern, Spider-Man is able to remove this threat and take a breather to replace his web cartridges. After some further shenanigans, he leaves the smuggler with our chums Sam and Arte for the police. This issue then takes a swerve to tell a completely different story. I was not expecting an Alfred Hitchcock homage in a Spider-Man comic. Peter arrives home late, only to recall he has a dinner date tomorrow with Aunt May and her new fiancé, Nathan Lubensky. Peter is really struggling with the idea that May has a new love in her life and decides he needs moral support on this date, so he gives a call to Deb Whitman, who, bless her cotton socks, agrees to go with him. Peter taking Deb for granted is another trope of this era. Peter isn't all that nice to Deb, but again, he is at least self-aware enough to know he's not being nice to her. He's actually a bit of a cad, and he promises himself he will try to make his hook to her. Worth noting, 10-year-old me found it intriguing that Deb Whitman clearly sleeps in the nude. I have no idea why she puts her glasses on, though, to answer the phone. Upon arriving at the restaurant, Deb and Peter have a subtext-loaded conversation about love and fancying people that mostly flies over Peter's head because he's clueless. The next part of the issue is devoted to establishing Nathan as a pretty decent sort. He's a wheelchair-bound former song and dance man who did a lot of USO tours. I don't think we ever find out how Nathan lost the use of his legs, but Stern is clearly setting up a man who lost his livelihood, but still faces the world with optimism and laughter. Despite this, Peter has his doubts, and we get an extended flashback to the origin of his powers, mostly focused on Uncle Ben and what a good surrogate father he was. With decades of stories now devoted to central characters and the daddy issues, it's nice to see that, prior to the spider's bite, Peter had a pretty normal relationship with his father figure. Then we steer into the swerve, as Peter notices the restaurant is empty and the waiters are all suspicious-looking characters with bad Mission Impossible-style masks. Uncharacteristically, Peter fights with them in his civilian guise, and is shocked when they are revealed to be the aliens he fought way back in Amazing Spider-Man number 2. As Peter ponders how implausible all this is, poor Deb goes into panic and shock. The aliens reveal that they want Curly's gold, or at the very least the treasure Dutch Malone stole and hid in the Parker's house, as revealed in Amazing Spider-Man issue 200, as covered in a previous episode of this show. Now, Peter really smells a rat. Why the hell would aliens be interested in Dutch Malone's ill-gotten gains? Not least because it doesn't exist. Peter protects Aunt May and the others by saying he knows all about Dutch's stolen loot. But why don't you leave these other guys alone, eh? Just take me with you. The aliens oblige, and Peter is taken away in the spaceship where the real villain reveals himself. Mysterio who is here to help the aliens conquer the world. (laughs) Yes, you're right. This is absolutely insane. As befits a sequel to the utterly daft Amazing Spider-Man issue 200. But Stern keeps the reader on board by having Peter constantly point out that it's absolutely insane. Aliens interested in a criminal's treasure makes no sense and adding mysterio to the mix ensures a product baked with added insanity but the core 
The problems Peter is experiencing are intrinsic to the appeal of the character, but updated for the times. Ignore the main plot. The centrepiece of the story, Peter Parker, is bothered about May's relationship. He's fretting that the Daily Globe has gone out of business and thus he has no job. And his relationship with Deb is curiously undefined. Dating, friends with benefits, casual acquaintances, who knows? Although, for the interested, the Daily Globe situation is currently ongoing in Amazing Spider-Man. And I refer you to my coverage of the Denny O'Neill run back in episodes 157 through 161 of this very show. In this issue, however, the White Tiger backup continues, in which the Tiger learns that Gideon Mace may be behind his family's death, but he faces a setback when Mace overpowers him. Issue 51 has another cover by Frank Miller, and this is another very dynamic one. Spider-Man punches Mysterio's fishbowl mask off his head as Deb watches, ever so slightly terrified. They are backed by a science fiction-type Flash Gordon-esque Boris Valjeo pulp cover-style background. Marie Severin returns as artist under Jim Mooney's inks, but Stern provides the consistency as writer for Aliens and Illusions. For years, Marvel had used John Romita as the guidebook on how to draw Spider-Man, and rightly so. Romita's work was all over the merchandise through the late 1960s through to the late 1980s. However, around this time, the influence of Ditko started making a comeback, firstly with the covers and interior work of Frank Miller, and here with the work of Marie Severin. Whether Severin saw what Miller was doing and liked it, or whether she brought a Ditko influence into her own work of her own volition, I have no idea. But it's nice to see. This is a very plot-heavy issue, with as many as nine panels a page, but mostly averaging six, and is a fan-related retcon at its heart. It turns out the aliens from Amazing Issue 2 weren't aliens after all, but were in fact out-of-work movie extras and stuntmen, including one Quentin Beck, aka Mysterio, who worked with the Tinkerer to steal scientific secrets. This was a bizarre retcon, eliminating aliens from that early Spider-Man strip, as well as establishing why Mysterio came after Spider-Man in the first place. It's perfectly fine to do away with the silliness of the alien story. After all, that was a throwback to the monster strips Lee and Ditko were doing before the superhero boom, and it didn't really fit in with what Spider-Man became. But this means that when these hoods were pretending to hold up the restaurant, they had alien masks over their real faces, and then a human mask over their alien mask. Which is an extra level of silly that I think we could do without. It's also enmeshed in the continuity of other stories as well. Mysterio was obsessed with Malone's treasure back in Amazing Spider-Man issue 96, and was involved in all that nonsense of convincing Peter that May Parker was dead. But that's not really resolved anyway at the end of this story. Still enough of what doesn't make sense, and on with the show. Because this is a Roger Stern tale, it is at least written with a level of verisimilitude that has you going along with it, simply because of how well it's written. Mysterio is off his trolley here, ranting and raving, and he's pretty obsessed with Malone's treasure to the point of being almost Ahab-like. Stern grounds the characters, though, and poor Deb Whitman just cannot cope with all of it. Think on it. 
If we are to treat this as really happening, as all good stories do, no matter the craziness of the plot, Deb has been kidnapped by aliens. She's pushed over the edge here. Ends up quite broken by it. It's all out of her realm of her comprehension. Still, despite this, Stern manages to have Deb develop her own agency, take ownership of the utterly bizarre situation in which she finds herself, and whack Mysterio over the back of the head with a model of Cloud City that he just happens to have lying around. Is the implication here that Mysterio worked on the special effects for the Empire Strikes Back? Also, poor Deb's therapy pills are going to be off the chart. The Spider-Man scenes are also very well done. Spidey manages to completely rewrite Mysterio's SFX computers, and Mysterio is baffled as how he accomplished this, as it would take someone who was off the chart smart, a nice reference to just how clever Peter is on a good day. Spidey also handles Mysterio's usual bag of tricks competently, and the best part of the issue is when Spidey turns the tables on Mysterio, using his own equipment against him, taunting him with his smart-ass wisecracks, and generally getting under Mysterio's skin. The only thing really wrong with this, if we ignore a retcon of a story from 20 years previously that no one probably really cared about, is that it's quite rushed. Now, yes, it's nice to read a story that moves, especially nowadays, but this could have perhaps used a few extra pages to just breathe a little. Again, however, the extra pages are taken by the White Tiger storyline that culminates in the White Tiger being gunned down by Gideon Mace and left for dead. Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man issue 52, written by Roger Stern, with art by Rick Leonardi and Jim Mooney, boasts a cover, again, by Frank Miller and Bob Wyasek, and features the White Tiger being gunned down rather mercilessly. It is entitled, The Day of the Hero Killers. For this issue, the backup strip about the White Tiger folds back into the main storyline, as following the dramatic ending to last month's issue, the burly alive body of the White Tiger is dumped in front of the Daily Bugle building just as Peter Parker is leaving. Despite the fracas, Peter manages to get a spider tracer on the bumper of the car that dumped the Tiger and then calls for an ambulance. The opener has a lot of nice characterization, from Peter's compassion to Jonah's flat-out refusal to want pictures of the scene, despite it being front-page material. His conversation with Robbie is particularly enlightening and played into an effort on behalf of the creative teams of the comics in the 80s to make Jonah less of a cartoon character. Stern gives Jonah a clear motivation for his dislike of Spider-Man by establishing that Jonah doesn't like any costumed vigilantes. It gives some insight into why he can tolerate the Fantastic Four or Captain America, but it doesn't really explain why he doesn't go after Daredevil with the same zeal or why he too became a vigilante with the Spider Slayer. At the hospital, the White Tiger, aka Hector Ayala, wakes up just long enough to bring Peter up to speed on the developments of his backup feature before passing out, and is rushed to the operating theatre. This is a bit campy to be fair, although it is explained that the amulets that power the White Tiger's abilities are also helping to keep him alive. P.I. Nathaniel Bird shows up to allow for further exposition, which means Spider-Man now knows everything that's been going on in his own comic, but that he was previously unaware of, because he was too busy messing around with Mysterio. Now armed with the knowledge that Gideon Mace is the bad guy, Spidey heads off to track his tracer. Stern minds some humour from a previous event whereby Spidey tagged a pigeon with a tracer back in issue 49. It's moments of levity such as this that relieve the tension of a very heavy issue, which has barely any respite or subplots. 
Due to that, this is heavy stuff. We rarely see Spider-Man as relentlessly angry as this, dealing with a brutal murderer who has no mercy, and barely making with any of his trademark quips as he takes down Macy's private army. All the while, we keep cutting back to the Hector's surgery, and what a slender thread his life hangs by, reminding us of the brutality of Macy's actions. Despite the heavier tone, this all holds up rather well, and, despite being quite dialogue-heavy, it's a breezy read thanks to the copious amounts of action. Some of the action, however, stretches credibility somewhat. There's a scene where Spider-Man avoids machine gun fire by rounding his enemies into a circle and then leaping upwards as they open fire, resulting in them all being gunned down. Perhaps feeling this was a tad bloodthirsty for our friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man, it is ultimately revealed that Macy's men were all wearing bulletproof vests and would all be fine. You know, just a minor headache, some busted ribs, that kind of thing. I'm unsure of my feelings on this. On the one hand, Spider-Man isn't a killer, either directly or inadvertently. And in fact, that's his whole motivation, his indirect responsibility for the death of an innocent man. I'm uncomfortable in him directly manoeuvring people in a position to be killed. On the other, the bulletproof vest thing seems to be a bit of a get-out-of-jail-free card for the character and lets him off the hook somewhat. After all, none of these jokers are really a match for him. Then again... He didn't make them open fire on him. They are trying to kill him. And individual responsibility has to come in somewhere. After all, they did shoot the White Tiger after ambushing him. And they completely underestimate Spider-Man. I'd love to hear what you all think about situations like this one. The overall brutality and relentless nature of the story culminates with Gideon Mace ordering his own men to shoot through him to kill Spider-Man. Which as you can imagine, leads to Mace being taken away in a body bag. There is then a significant gap of time between the end of the story and the epilogue, in which Hector has made a miraculous recovery, despite having seven bullets in him. He chooses to remove the amulets that gave him its powers, but also saved his life. He gives them to Bird and asks for them to be returned to the Sons of the Dragon. He then leaves and, as of this recording, has never been seen again. As I stated, this is a decent story with a different tone than normal, but I feel it was really more about writing the White Tiger out than being specifically a Spider-Man story. If Macy's men had dumped the White Tiger's body in front of the Baxter building or Nelson and Murdoch, it could have just as easily been a Fantastic Four or a Daredevil story, albeit without the connection to Hector that Peter has. It's also quite violent for a Spider-Man story of this vintage, but it's all tastefully handled and entertaining to read. Art-wise, Jim Mooney's heavy ink subsume Rick Leonardi's idiosyncratic style, to the point where I wouldn't have known this was his work without reading the credits. Peter Parker issue 53 was a fill-in written by Bill Mantler, which explains why it wasn't in my Roger Stern collections. Toys of the Terrible Tinkerer had art by Jim Mooney and Frank Springer. While looking around for this issue, because, as I say, it skips over it in the omnibus, I came across a slabbed version of this comic. Why would anyone slab this comic? It's not special, it has nothing in it that makes it special, and it's not by hot creators. I've nothing against Jim Mooney or Bill Mantlo, both of whom are fondly remembered, especially Mantlo for Rom and Micronauts, but there is no reason whatsoever to slab this comic, other than greed or stupidity.
It's taking a book that should be in the dollar bins and forcing a value on it for no reason. I do often wonder how many raw copies of certain comics are left out there in the wilderness for us to enjoy. Or have they all been slabbed in carbonite now, encased for all eternity, never to be read again? Comics aren't paintings to be admired. They're stories to be read. Anyway, Peter Parker 53 had a great cover by John Romita Jr. and Al Milgram of The Terrible Tinkerer, launching an all-out toy attack on Spider-Man, who he's been bear-hugged by toy, the Tinkerer's assistant. He's not startlingly original, the Tinkerer, in his naming conventions. The story itself is a pretty fun fill-in, done in one, whatever you want to call it. As a fill-in, it has no subplots or furthering of any story arcs, but it's a solid issue. This must have been one of the first US Spider-Man comics I owned, as whilst reading this, panels and certain sequences came flooding back. I distinctly remembered the opening sequence where Peter has to save the life of an attempted suicide in his civilian clothes, and the twist ending. It's not a classic issue by any means, but it's a good, solid story, well drawn, and overall a satisfying read. What more could anyone ask? Peter Parker 54 sees Stern return, along with Mary Severin, who also plotted, and Jim Mooney's back as Inca. At least that's what the credits say, but halfway through this issue, the art changes substantially, and I think another Inca took over, or Severin inked the last half of the book herself. I can't tell, and I can't find any further information. The cover by Frank Miller and Walt Simonson is one of the finest of the run. These two artists defined two different characters from Marvel in the 80s, Daredevil and Thor respectively, so to see them provide some Spider-Man work was a treat for this 80s kid. Spider-Man dressed in traditional feudal Japanese samurai garb over his costume definitely avoids the swipe of the katana, I think. It's a stunning cover, beautifully coloured and really eye-catching. The story, to save a smuggler, concerns itself with wrapping up the loose ends from previous stories. An action-packed opening sees an ambulance speeding through the streets being pursued by a nondescript vehicle that is firing upon them. Spider-Man steps in to help the ambulance but learns he's backed the wrong horse. And the unmarked car is actually Police Lieutenant Chris Keating and the ambulance has been hijacked as it's carrying the smuggler. The drivers are the Magia who have kidnapped the smuggler to prevent him from testifying against them. Keating, none too impressed, orders Spider-Man arrested. But you can pretty much guess how that works out. You can never go wrong with opening a story with an action beat as it introduces the characters, the motivation and provides some eye candy. To be fair, the unmarked car was not identified in any way as the police, so Spider-Man's assumption is a fair one. Having learned of his goof, Spidey attempts to rectify the situation by pursuing the ambulance. He does so, but the Magia men open fire in a crowd. Spider-Man obviously ceases the pursuit to save lives, which in turn allows them to escape, but not before they drop a matchbook with the name and address of a Japanese restaurant on it. Well, that was lucky. Spider-Man and Detective Snyder, with whom Spidey shows a more cordial relationship, swap notes. Spidey learns Keaton convinced the smuggler, Eric Joston, to turn state's evidence, the unfortunate side effect of which means that when word got out, the Magia, who used to work with Joston, decide to stop him from talking. Keating bursts in, and he and Snyder butt heads, and Spidey bails. It's another good scene. We learn that Spider-Man isn't feared by all the NYPD, and some are happy to work with him, if only Spidey will obey some rules here and there and cut them some slack. 
Sadly, Keating being a hothead ruins this. A spider, who is just as hot-headed in his own way, won't work with him. Still, Spidey had his own methods, and over at ESU he asks Phil Chang if he's heard of the restaurant, the Chrysanthemum and the Sword. Phil says he has, and that he's in fact Japanese, not Chinese, and one of those exclusive floating restaurants. Meanwhile, Steve Hopkins is spending far too much time wondering why Marcy Kane is covering her blonde hair with a number of different scarves and a turban. This will be a dead end of a storyline that most readers, according to the letters pages, thought was going in a very, very different direction. But we'll cover that when we get there. The art of the latter half of the book is exceptional, despite the change in art styles, and it's this kind of thing that made me fall in love with Spider-Man. I expect I could go to the New York Harbour and it would exactly like it looks here, unlike the depiction of the British Museum I recently saw in an issue of Master of Kung Fu. Spidey sneaks aboard and hijinks ensue. Spidey sets about saving Jostin and ends up fighting Samurai, all of which makes for some exceptionally cool visuals and a snappy ending. Stern makes Spidey funny and his fighting what's dressed as a Samurai warrior is a highlight of the issue. But Stern remembers that Spider-Man stories have to have an element of tragedy and Jostin is shot as he and Spider-Man make their way off the boat. Fortunately, Detective Snyder is at the docks and Jostin is tended to. However, the patrons blame Spider-Man and Jostin for the incident, claiming Spidey tried to endanger them. Spidey accidentally spills a doggy bag of heroin and this happy accident gives Snyder enough grounds for a warrant for a search. With all that sorted, Spidey tucks into a nice side of beef teriyaki. This isn't a bad issue. The visuals are pleasing and it moves along at a decent pace. It also has some nice interactions between the supporting cast of the time. And I wonder what happened to all these as Snyder, Keating, Phil Chang and Steve Hopkins were all nice new additions to the Spider-Man support artists. Keating and Snyder would all but disappear. Hopkins and Chang barely showed up after Stern left and Marcy Kane ended up being a alien from a planet called Contracts. I'm not making that up. That could be what they hinted at here, but I kind of doubt it. Overall, though, a decent run of comics, but not Stern's best work. That happens next time, which you'll hear when I get around to covering Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man, issues 55 and 61. Oh, Autumn. The leaves change colors and begin to fall. The kids go back to school. Pumpkin Spice becomes its own food group. And little ghosts and goblins are on the streets begging for candy. But something sinister awaits. Back in the woods among those dead trees sits a foreboding, dilapidated manor. You can't resist. You must go inside and return to... The House of Franklin Stein. Did you hear that? I heard that. What was it? Listen to them. Children of the night, what music they make. The Supermates Podcast presents four spine-tingling episodes covering your favorite classic horror films featuring these iconic stars. Griffin Dunn and David Naughton. You're one of the undead, and I'm a werewolf. Yes, that's right. Bela Lugosi. I am Dracula. I bid you welcome. Claude Rains. You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? Alright, I'll show you! <laughs> and Peter Cushing. I can hear his voice! It's in your own mind! It just has to be true! 
plus your favorite superheroes versus classic monsters. I understand your concern, Mr. Wayne, but I don't think you need to worry that Wayne Tech is responsible for this invisible man. But I seem to remember last year hearing something about an invisibility project. Visit fireandwaterpodcast.com or your favorite podcatcher for the 10th annual journey into terror at the house of Frankenstein. available in pumpkin spice flavor. Okay, quick look at the email. It's always nice to look at the email, I think. Always nice to hear what you think. Our email today, first of all, comes from Jack Bond. How long can you stir at a black sun? Relating to the episode I did about Space 1999. Jack says, Black Sun is one of the two episodes I remember unprompted, the other being the bringers of wonder, with its scenes set on Earth. Well, the crew thinking they're on Earth. An interesting note, considering the reasons you mentioned for the creation of the show. That's interesting, that, Jack, because both Black Sun and the bringers of wonder were incorporated into film versions of Space 1999. You know that practice of taking episodes of TV shows and stitching them together to make direct-to-TV... DVD, DVD didn't exist there. Direct-to-video movies and then syndicating them as films. Black Sun was one, and The Bringers of Wonder being a two-part episode was just stitched together to make a 90-minute movie. So I wonder if you saw those films a couple of times as a kid, and that's why these two episodes are the ones you remember. I don't know if that's true, but it certainly seems to be a constant amongst people that the memory is of those stitched together movies rather than the actual series itself. And that is, again, because those movies tended to get screened more than the series. Anyway, Jack continues. Prompted, I remember seeing the Beta Cloud. I don't know that any story that has explicitly dealt with what must be a metamorph secret power Super senses to analyse all the creatures' physiology. I thought this idea came to me from Star Trek The Undiscovered Country, where Marta makes a comment about alien knees. But it must have been planted here, with Maya unable to take the obvious route for a metamorph to face off with an unstoppable alien. Space 1999 is streaming in the US on the free tier of Peacock, a service owned by the NBC network and named after their mascot. I would guess NBC owning the Sci-Fi Channel has something to do with them streaming 1999, Thunderbirds, Space Precinct and Hammer House of Horror, as well as a random handful of anime and old and recent Universal Studios productions. That's a good list. Interesting though that they have picked four shows though that have all been remastered in HD. That's that's quite interesting because Space Precinct of all the Jerry Anderson shows has just been remastered into a glorious HD print. And yet, it seems a curious Anderson show to pick, but I don't know. Maybe that means you'll get UFO soon, anyway. I admit that when I've been dipping into the show, it's been for the models. Oddly, a lot of the Earth family of ships, the Swift, the Super Swift, the Ultra Probe, and the Hypersonic Glider, used to land on a planet instead of an eagle, for some reason, are from the second season. And they point to an even more advanced space program in 1999 than the first season suggested. At least the Alphans didn't run into the space hippies, space circus, and space cowboy that the Robinson family met whilst lost in space. Douglas Adams pointed out it was a harsh lesson he learned on Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Don't destroy the Earth in your first episode. You're going to want it later. Jack. That's true, because in the books, he had to bring Earth back in some way, didn't he? Didn't the Magratheans recreate it? 
been a long time since I read Life, the Universe and Everything. Or is it mostly harmless? It's one of them anyway, isn't it? Uh, anyway, thank you. Thank you, Jack. That was good, that. Let me know if you think it is the films that provoke those episodes. Memories lodged in your in the darker recesses of your brain. Or if you never even saw the films. I don't know. Hey, Andrew. Hey, Matt. Just watching Space 1999 on one of the streaming services. So advantageous timing. It's nice to see so many of you are visiting Space 1999. Throughout the late 70s, early 80s, Space 1999 was regularly voted one of the worst science fiction shows ever made. And I was always like, what are you guys smoking? So it's nice to see people reappraising it. I mean, it took 50 years, but, you know, we got there eventually. And enjoying it so far, says Matt. Nice to know you have a good impression of the show. Always appreciate your Spider-Man coverage. Thanks for the entertainment, Matt Prather. Well, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode, Matt. Uh, and I hope that you will come back next time. No idea what I'm going to do. <laughs> it's just the way this show works. So thank you to you two for emailing in. And I'll see you all again real soon. Don't forget, Hey Kids Comics is back with all new monthly episodes coming in your ears on your favourite podcatcher of choice. And if you want to buy Michael and I a coffee, you can. Just buy us a drink. We appreciate a pint, especially with Christmas coming up, he said. It's only September, but whatever. Uh, Ko-Fi slash Andrew Leyland is where you can do that. That would be lovely. So take care, and I'll see you all next week for more of this kind of thing, if this kind of thing is what you enjoy. Goodbye.